0: This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the next installment of the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. I'm Wyatt McPherson. I produce this show. And this week, we have got the fourth installment in our first subject matter expert series with special guest, Chris Coombs, the general manager of Innovator. This week, he is back to talk all about composite repair and what this alternative leak repair method can do for you and your next project or repair. It's a great conversation that you won't want to miss any of. So let's get into this episode.
1: Good day, everyone. And welcome to the next episode of the Industrial Innovators podcast. I am your host, Don Cooper and today we have innovators general manager and technical director Chris Coombs with us and we're going to be talking about engineered composite pipe repair welcome Chris
2: uh, hi Don thanks for having me
1: welcome back yeah. <laughs> we're doing us we're doing a series on um, with our subject matter experts and covering some of uh, Of innovators services and technologies from our perspective Um, and uh, you get to be on the hot seat for some of those conversations over the course of our first 10 episodes or so we've had a lot of our partners and supplier guests talking about uh, about their technology that we incorporate into our mix of innovations Uh, but there we you know innovator takes those technologies and applies them with our own unique processes with our own values and beliefs and procedures and qualification systems that adds additional value on top of whatever happens with the invention of a technology and i thought it would be really valuable if we uh, we also have the perspective of how we put those a lot of those uh, capabilities to use in, in the unique environment within uh, within our company and for our clients and with the regulatory requirements that might be unique uh, to uh, what our clients face. so um, we've had we've had uh, another episode with one of our partners on composite uh, repair um, in our series and we're talking about their product um, and we've done a webinar uh, on that as well. but I thought we would, really uh, want to pivot a little bit and talk about innovators approach to composite repair and specifically some of the uniqueness of engineered uh, composite pipe repair in, uh, in our regulatory environment. And when I say that I'm I'm specifically talking about Canada, um, and, and the way that uh, we need to apply those solutions in within, within the way that, uh, we have this additional tier of uh, regulatory approval, or or not, uh, as it as it relates to uh, as it relates to leak uh, as it relates to composite repair, which is different than uh, the episodes we've done on uh, on stream leak repair. So, Chris, from your perspective, um, just tell tell the audience, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about engineered composite
2: repair? Yeah, absolutely, and. I'm gonna try because I, I did listen and, and enjoy very much the, the episode with um with our partner. I'm gonna try and stay away from too much technical information because it was much more clearly delivered in that in that episode than then what I'll be able to do. Um but but composite repair, so just very quickly, I mean composite itself means you're taking some dissimilar materials and you're combining them together. To create a new, stronger material, right? So in this case, we have a carbon fiber, a fiberglass. We have a cloth, a, a woven cloth, and we combine that. We combine that with a resin system. Um, those two combined together, when cured, create a very stiff, you know, yet brittle component. Um, using that component, so what we're able to do is when the as we apply the resin to the cloth it's you know it's still it's still in a very soft state, very very formable. So so what we can do is we can use that composite and apply it to piping, apply it to equipment, apply it to vessels to form the shape of that piping. So you know it's called composite wrap and we you know we wrap it around piping. We we wrap it around vessels, We, we use it to patch vessels. There's there's a lot of different applications you can use composite repair but you're taking a damaged component um something that has loss of integrity and you're restoring that integrity with a composite material so we're talking about uh piping
1: systems pressurized systems that have had some sort of damage uh are we yes. talking about we're talking external corrosion internal erosion um dents what about active leaks
2: So so it is all of the above, Um, internal, external corrosion. So so let's go through the list, I think. External corrosion is the perfect candidate because not only do you restore the integrity of the pipe when you perform the repair, you eliminate the mode of failure. So in this case, the mode of failure, whether it's external corrosion from the atmosphere or external corrosion from CUI, corrosion under insulation, once you apply the composite, you remove that contamination from happening. So those would fall in the realm of a permanent repair, um, something that has a 20 plus year lifestyle. You know, the, the term defined life is something that's been discussed before and, and potentially we'll get into it in this episode as well. But when we talk about external corrosion, those are ones that are eligible for a permanent repair because you've eliminated that mode of failure. Internal corrosion, we approach it the same way, where we, you know, you would still wrap the pipe from the outside, but because you've, you haven't eliminated that mode of failure, it's going to continue to corrode from the inside, and that's where the defined life would come in. So you would design your solution specifically for that mode of failure, estimate the, or not necessarily estimate, design the life cycle, and perform the repair. Dents. Um, Other types of defects like that can be repaired as well. There's there's, uh, different types of epoxy systems that you can use to fill a dent, which removes any sort of stress concentration, um, any deformities in the wrap. You really want a a uniform shape to your wrap, so you can fill the dent and perform the wrap. And then lastly, active leaks. Not ideal, but yes, they can be done. Um, Not by wrapping directly on an active leak, by using some sort of leak suppression method, like a stopgap or temporary isolation, you can wrap over a through-hole defect, just not while it's actively leaking on the product. Perfect, so we, you know, in Canada,
1: I really want to hone in on a a very particular word on how we describe this compared to how, many operators or maintenance people may perceive this solution to be. And we call this engineered composite repair. What's the difference between an engineered composite repair and what a lot of maintenance teams might use or do or have historically seen from other wrapping people um, with, uh, with the way that they've, they've, they've sort of experienced this in Canada over the
2: years? Absolutely. So, and it is, you know, a term that has meaning based on, you know, the context. So at the beginning, you know, whether it's the the one the maintenance team is using that we refer to as your off-the-shelf composite, we're not saying that there hasn't been engineering in that product. There absolutely has. Somebody has designed that product. It has known strength values. It has known temperature limitations. That, there's engineering in that product. When we talk about an engineering an engineering composite repair in Canada, specifically for Innovator, we're engineering it for the application. We're engineering it specifically for your situation and how we're going to repair that situation. And that's where the engineering comes in. We're giving you a product with, again, with known strength values, known temperature limitations but a defined life based on your pressure, based on the temperature, and based on the number of wraps that we apply, we engineer a solution to allow you to achieve what you're trying to achieve in this case, which is continued operation. Whereas the other product is more about a band-aid, more about stopping a leak, than it is about providing a defined life solution. So there's a, there's a history of
1: lots of maintenance teams using off the shelf, water activated fiberglass products and that product, there's nothing wrong with that product. It's, as you say, the product is engineered. What is it engineered is the way that they're using it. Absolutely. the the the, The process and the procedures and a whole bunch of steps are being missed. Uh, in terms of the way that they're using it compared to what we're talking about here,
2: it, it is, Don. And there's, you got to, th- you can't think about it anymore like the product. Um, you know, I'm going to use this product or, or that product is better than the previous product. We got to look at it as a composite repair system. So we're engineering a composite repair system. That system includes the piping, the defect the temperature the pressure the process it includes the installer the training the competency and then it also includes the engineering assessment specifically for that product it includes the surface prep there's so much that goes into an engineered composite solution that goes well beyond the product of you know of choosing for that for that particular leak or defect right so the difference is, you know, I, I, I'm
1: thinking out loud here, you know, a, a radial tire on my Ford F-150 is an engineered product.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if I try to install it with duct tape on a 747, it's not going to do the job it's designed to do.
2: <laughs> no, and no, definitely not. That's,
1: a, that's an extreme and silly example, but that really is to emphasize that this has nothing to do with the product. And it has nothing to do with saying that the off-the-shelf things that a lot of maintenance teams use are bad, but they're not used the way we're talking about them. And so there's a reputation in Canada, and it has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have we have this other level of regulatory oversight in Canada over top of sort of the American Society of Mechanical Engineer code guidelines that says what is approved or not approved relative to our quality systems on pressurized systems and so far in in the uh in in the uh, process facility side there hasn't been an official way for engineered composites to be leveraged the way it is under ASME guidelines Uh, and so all of this there's this perception a misperception that uh that composite product equals composite engineered composite repair and a lot of the feedback i get from people who are not specifically in the engineered composite space will say to me hey, i've used that product before and it doesn't work
2: a- <clears throat> absolutely um and, and you know i've been heavily involved with the regulatory body as we progress composite and it's an exciting time. And I know we're going to talk about that today. It's an exciting time in composite as we lay the groundwork to use this as a, I I like to stay away from the word approved, but right now approved is the word that comes to mind using it as an approved repair method. Um, So, so there's some very great things happening there, but The product itself, like I can do, I could do a better repair with a less, you know, engineered product as if I considered the composite system than I could do with the most expensive, most detailed engineering product on the market if it's not used the right way in the right application.
1: So if you, if you take the, the material, what we'll call the product the material and lay it aside. All the value is being created in the step-by-step system of how, you know, when we say an engineered composite solution, we're talking about the system, not, not, not the material. The Material is one piece of that.
2: That's all it is. The material, the product is one piece of the engineered system, the composite repair system. And that's the biggest mind shift I think that people, uh, you know, that people have to, to make is that the repair is not the product. The product is, you know, good or bad, doesn't dictate the repair. Um, Is this the right application within the system? Are you using the right product? Are you using it the right way? Did you perform all the required surface preparation to make this successful? What we're doing with the regulatory body is defining that much more clearly to give people the rules and the guidance so that they can.
1: So let's walk through some of those major components of what that system entails.
2: Sure. Um, we, we talked about the product. Um, so, you know, there's definitely different types of composite repair products out there ranging from some things that you meant like pre-impregnated, um, urethane fiberglass products where the resin is pre-impregnated into the fiberglass cloth and then they're water activated. You can still have a engineered composite complete composite system with that style of product. Then the products would range from, you know, two part epoxy systems. So then you would separate your cloth and you would have a two part resin system and you go through a wet out process where you physically, you mix your chemicals and then you wet, you know, you mix a resin with a hardener and then you you wet out your cloth and you perform the repair. And those cloths typically come in carbon fiber or fiberglass, different levels of weave, you know, Biaxial, triaxial, quadaxial, different levels of weave, different thickness of fibers. But but that's basically the product, Um, one component. Easiest way to maybe look at this is to think about the steps as we go through. Um, There's just like everything, there's an engineering assessment. There's data collection. So one part of the system is understanding the defect um, at, at at its root. So what's the What's the substrate? And the substrate in this case is piping. What piping material? What's the process running through the pipe? And what temperature does it operate at? So that's a key component in the system.
1: So, step one would be collaborating with the client to get all of the details on the piping and the defect, having a data sheet, um, potentially having other design criteria, process information that they have. Uh, Same way we would start off a uh, engineered, uh, leak containment device.
2: Exactly. And the benefit for us is just like, you know, it, we, there is no one solution fits all. So when we start this process, we're not locked into a composite repair. Whereas, you know, another company, if that's their service offering, they might be, well, they're going to try to make a composite repair fit the application. It may be a leak repair activity. It may be an EPE. It may be a composite. The data collection process is consistent with all three. So we're able to, at that point, determine what the best solution is. And that's key. But it is still part of the composite system. So then you go through an engineering assessment. And these, you know, in our industry, these are not performed by the installer. So innovator in this case, we fill the role of the installer. Um, The manufacturer supplier of the product is where the detailed engineering knowledge exists. And they perform the engineering assessment. So they design the repair specifically for that application, for that rate of corrosion, for that pinhole size. They design the repair specifically for that to a defined life. One year, two year, six year, 12 year, 20 year, depending on you know, what the desired outcome is. And that, that design
1: criteria, that engineering assessment, is based on what? What's the, what's the code basis for how, how they are doing that assessment?
2: There's, um, there's two codes that are the global standards. There's, there's a North American Code, ASME PCC-2, Article 4, that provides guidance on, do, on the design. So not just the design of the repair, but also the design of the product and the material testing of the product. So, there's ASME PCC2 Article 4, and then there's ISO um, 24718. So, two codes written specifically about performing composite repair.
1: So, this is, you know, we have have engineering organizations who have created standardized methodology, and all of what we're talking about is solid
2: engineering-based solutions, and that's where we start. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it goes... Inside of that engineering solution, there's different options. So, one of the key components of a composite repair system is the surface prep. So, we covered, we talked briefly about this in our composite repair webinar, where there was a, a massive study performed in the UK on hundreds, thousands of applications, and the main mode of failure determined was surface preparation issues. So, inside of of a design for a system, the method of surface prep needs to be identified and incorporated into that design. There's different levels of effectiveness for aggregate blasting, so for sandblasting type activities, then for mechanical prep versus hand prep. So all of those scenarios are captured and identified into the design. So I design it with certain values if it's going to be aggregate blasting. Or on the flip side, in the other extreme, you would design the product with certain values if it's going to be a hand prep. So, the surface preparation of the piping is the most important aspect of performing a successful composite repair. Yeah,
1: I've seen over the years with a lot of these uh, unengineered repairs and this perception that it doesn't work. And the root cause is is no bond. You know, They, mm-hmm. they didn't do surface preparation, they took uh, pipe that had mill scale and, or rust and corrosion on it. They gave it a quick skim with a, uh, a wire brush, and then they threw on some product and, and, and then it didn't work. Well, it didn't work uh, not because the product is bad, but it didn't work because, well, one, it wasn't engineered, but two, they, they had no, no, no adequate surface preparation or they used, um, no criteria for evaluating is that the right surface prep, and most of the time, it's the person, the the, the pipe fitter or the technician who's at the work face who says, "I'm going to give this a good a good a good scrub with a wire brush, and I'm going to apply this product." And in no way, it, it, it doesn't even meet the 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 minimal acceptable standard for what I would call a hand prep um, using a wire brush. And but that's that's where so many of these applications. Uh, that have been used and, and built some sort of misuse perception of this product has, has come down to no idea about what is required for surface preparation.
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to explain this, in, not necessarily in a less technical way, but maybe in a way that's more relevant to, to listeners who are involved in traditional um, repair methods. So welding, for instance. Welding has essential and non-essential variables. If you change an essential variable, um, you know, on the weld you're about to perform, then your procedure is no longer qualified. You have to go back and you have to re-qualify your procedure. Where we are going with ABSA and the industry in Alberta and Saskatchewan with composite is really getting into understanding what are the essential and non-essential variables. And surface prep is an essential variable. So consider... We're qualifying the application at the manufacturer level of a product procedurally. So it's not just about pulling strands between, you know, two a tensile testing machine and understanding what the, the tensile strength of a strand of carbon fiber is. You've got to mix the composite, you know, apply it, and have real results in qualifying the procedure. If you qualify that procedure with sandblasting, That is now an essential variable. If you go to use that product with the qualification in the field on mechanical prep, it's no longer qualified. Right. So we're really, that's a change. So right now, even though we know, and especially at Innovator, we we understand the importance of surface prep, we treat it non-essential. We we'd use a product that's been previously tested in a manufacturer's facility with sandblasting. And then perform a mechanical prep, for instance, bristle blaster, in the field and apply that product. We have amazing success rates, and we're not doing anything incorrectly when we do that. Just giving you some insight into where we're developing the standard for our industry going forward, that same product would need to be qualified with the mechanical prep in order for us to use it as a mechanical prep.
1: Like two different well procedures.
2: Exactly. right. Essential and and non-essential variables is a lot of the discussion uh, on what we talk about.
1: Now, we've had to develop a lot of our own processes in the absence of industry standards being established in Canada. And I know one of the, I mean, we use mechanical prep with uh, a product called a bristle blaster often because it allows us to be a single source provider and have more control over the timeline. Now a bristle blaster is effectively, you know, its its tagline is is um, is sandblasting without grit, <clears throat> and because it's not a wire, you know, to be clear to the audience, a bristle blaster is not a mechanical wire brush. It's something else. It it, it creates it creates um, a a a blasted grit with with micro crater sort of surface, pre- surface prep this in a similar way, not the same way, but a similar way that grip blasting would perform. But when we're, you know, what we have done with surface prep in terms of our own application is to have a way to evaluate the surface prep that that we have performed Prior to installation, a, a way to measure it, a way to visually index it. Can
2: you just describe what we're doing there a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, even though the two codes we referenced, you know, PCC 2, Article 4, and the ISO standard, they're not adopted in the pressure safety legislation in Alberta. But they exist, and the information in them is good. You know, it's based on experience, it's based on knowledge, it's based on industry. So we we're able to leverage the information in there and then understanding what the requirements are. We, you know, we added a layer onto our surface prep where we use micrometers and test X tape to measure specifically the surface profile. In our engineering assessments, they come with a recommended profile range. You can only install this product in an anchor profile ranging from two to four mils. So part of our ITP, part of our process is to ensure that our surface prep achieved the desired two to four mils of anchor profile and then visual cleanliness standards that, that are part of NACE or SSPC um, to before we would move past that type of surface prep. Right. So we, we've written step-by-step procedures and trained our staff in how to perform those activities. Right, so
1: we, we've collected the data, all the data needed. We've performed an engineering assessment. We've now looked at the surface prep and really talked about how that is such a critical step. And now you mentioned uh, training and competency. Let's talk about that for a minute because I think that is the next piece. A lot of the time, that historically, uh, people who have used other products um, may or may not have had even a training event. Um, not say a competency process. So let's just talk about what, competent, what training means, what competency means relative
2: to the installing personnel. Uh, absolutely. So, And I can give you a very personal experience to kick it off. My introduction into the composite world was a tr- training event. I had a, a two-day training event where I wrapped in a shop environment some sandblasted piping spools very very simple easy to do Um, we pressure tested those spools on day two they all passed and i passed a written test based on a powerpoint presentation very very easy for me to do 100 on the test and you know pressure values well exceeding what the pass criteria was i got out into the field to perform composites i didn't have sandblasted pipe and I didn't know how to achieve that surface prep. Um, we were wire brushing, we were cleaning. It wasn't coming clean, you know. what? And we wrapped it anyway um, because we didn't know any better. And that's that's a long time ago. And I'm very happy to say that I've I've graduated from that mindset and that position. But that's what happens when you're giving a training event. You learn what you cover in the training event specifically, and what we need you know, is a le- to ensure a level of competency, there's, there's, much, you know, there's, there's a level of experience that would come with that. So my experience with a training event would be very similar to a lot of other people in the industry's experience with training events where they have a vendor, they have a supplier come in, sell them some product and train them for one, two, maybe three days on how to install that product and all you learn to do with that training event is how to install the product on depressurized sandblasted three six and four inch pipe that right. does not help you in your facility
1: no well and it's it's theory you know, the way I think about these training events that have have historically become, you know, the the tradition for all of these different products, and whether it's this product or, you know, they're teaching someone with a torque wrench or a pipe cutting machine. All these training events don't provide any competency, and they don't provide any application of real life applications. They are theoretical at best, um, and they, you know, the way I think about a training event, is there a good introduction or orientation to what this solution could do if you were competent?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I've personally been, so I've, I've, I think I've got about 10 years on you. Um, although I, I don't have as much gray. So, <laughs> but, but I've got about 10 years on you and I started doing composite uh, as a been about 23 or so years. And I, I've been through composite training by every single manufacturer that, of all the well-known manufacturers of these products that exist, you know, three different products in the U S two. uh, Three and three different products that come from Europe. Over those 23 years, I've had six of these training events. I have always passed the exams. I've always passed the practical shop um, applications. And I have never done a field installation. Right. Because I've always been in a leadership or management role, and I was doing the training event to understand the product and, understand, and, and form a relationship with whoever that, that, that manufacturer was. And I, you know, under our system, our competency system, innovators competency system, you know, doing that training event is the start of me being able to be gradually made competent. So, you know, we're we're, we're approaching this differently because we are breaking it down into a whole bunch of components and then explain what we're doing after the training event relative to competency in developing our people to a point where we're putting the best, most competent people on the workface when we go to install.
2: Absolutely. So we have two, two kind of events that could kickstart a career in composites. So there is the training event that you talked about. Um, that is step one in becoming a competent installer. There's also you know, on a composite job, you could have a small scale or large scale job. And there is the need for people who are supervisors. And then there's also the need for people who are assisting. You know, we we call them helpers. Um, You know, you can use the term apprentice. And those apprentices could go, go on a job like that without going through a training event. But at Innovator, what they must do is take our orientation. So based on training events that we've had in the past, and based on our own knowledge, we've developed our own video orientation. Um, covers all the information in a training event, but it's specifically the innovator, and it carries a lot more about our safety program and some different specific components to us. But that would kickstart somebody, also could kickstart somebody's career in composite, because we've got our internal orientation program. And once they, once they complete that, that allows them to start getting some real-world experience. But outside of that, we would you know, work with a manufacturer, set up a training class, and then put our technicians, installers, through a product-specific training application or a training event, product-specific. That's important to note that that's product-specific. Like learning the six,
1: those are all product-specific training events.
2: Yeah, learning how to install a specific um, carbon fiber product does not train you on how to install something, you know, that is ultra-high temperature requiring post-cure. Or that's, you know, a fiberglass product with a completely different resin mixing system. It's important to note that the training event is still required. And, you know, the certificate of completing that training event is still a requirement. Requirement for innovator, going to be a requirement for APSA going forward, but that doesn't get you there. And it doesn't even get you halfway there. So You're
1: not, you're not, you're not competent, in our view, under our program, no. after, after doing that manufacturer's product training event. No.
2: So, so what we've done, uh, we've done this with all our, with all our services is we've broken them down into individual skills required that, you know, when we look at our most experienced installers and we look at the activities that they perform on a day-to-day basis from simple to complex jobs, we're able to break those down into skills, into separate skills. We've categorized them all and we've built a training manual to guide somebody through achieving those skills. So you use the training manual, you start your career path in composite, you work with a senior member of the team, eventually you're you're comfortable in those skills, you perform those for two senior members, so two separate peer reviews, then you graduate to a manager review, and then finally I review all your skills and uh, and grant you a competency level. And we break it down into two levels, this is very simple, level one, level two.
1: Right. And so when you think about each of those, each of those skills assessments, uh, I don't have the exact list in front of me, but as an example, under composite repair, there may be 30 different skills that are tied back to procedures. Each of those skills is a procedure in itself that has, you know, a step list of exactly knowing how to, how to do that. And then once they have practiced with competent people in the field in an apprenticeship style method and studied it and maybe done some practical shop exams and field exams, we're then effectively saying, okay, you're ready on these five skills. Let's go do it in the field, real live applications, under supervision, and two different different qualified and competent peers are going to evaluate their competency against those applications as well as a manager, and then finally our technical director. So they're getting four competency reviews against each skill before they're deemed competent in that skill.
2: That's right. Um, And and, the details of the program, you explained it perfectly. I don't approve every skill. I I approve them when they've hit a certain number of skills. So we associate a certain number of skills um, with achieving a level So at my level, I I review once the the level has been achieved um, as a final gate. In terms of the skills, there's three separate reviews on the skills. Right.
1: And so to be competent as opposed to trained in engineered composite repair has this whole set of skills, peer reviews, observations, competency evaluations, a, 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 a leadership level sign off that they're, that they're competent. How
2: long does that take? Um, It it, it will definitely depend on the applications. Um, We don't necessarily have an hours requirement. We don't believe that it takes exactly a hundred hours to achieve a certain skill. What we believe in is that it takes, you know, a comfort level, And then a demonstrated ability multiple times consistently to perform it, which is why we have it structured this way, rather than write rather than me check a piece of paper when this person's when when employee X has 500 hours, we chose to do it through a demonstration method. Um, Realistically, you would be looking at anywhere from um, two to three, and maybe even longer. But you would be able to achieve a level one um, probably in your second year and then anywhere between, you know, depending on the amount of applications that you work through, you're looking at five years, maybe a little less, to become a full level two competent senior installer. Right.
1: Five years versus a three-day training event. Absolutely. And therein lies the difference. Right. And
2: And that could always be accelerated. But, I mean, we're completing, you know, you're just completing more more work in in a shorter time period. So, you know, a lot of focused activity. Sure, maybe somebody could achieve it in three to four years. But just thinking about the amount of calls that we receive, that's where I I put it in that range. Yeah.
1: If you were doing, you know, a variety of different applications every single day, you might get some of those qualifications in a year or two. But. You know, we're not doing composite every single day. Our online technicians who follow um, and, and choose to, to follow the path of becoming uh, engineer composite qualified um, are also learning other services like on stream leak repair or cryogenic freeze plugs. And you know, each day they're exposed to different kinds of work. So in order for them to get enough applications in composite repair to meet our competency levels, it takes some time simply because of exposure hours to that, those applications. Absolutely. And the difference between that, you know, people who are doing this three day event versus what we're talking about can have a massive impact on the quality and the results performed in those
2: installations. Every application is different and you will never see every application. You can't wait and say, okay, yeah, that was my 199th application. That's all of the known applications. I'm good. Um, What the experience does is it, you know, it gives you the ability to improvise. It gives you the ability to predict. It gives you the ability to adjust when conditions change. um, And you just can't get that comfort level, that comes with experience. And you just can't achieve that in any short training class. Um, Customizing material, um, creating strips for gossets, there's a lot of different techniques that are involved that you may only see once a year. Um, So really hard to develop a competency on that when you only see it once a year. Totally
1: understandable. So we've collected data, we've engineered the the solution for this particular defect we've done the surface prep we now have these competent people and we've installed a uh, a um, a repair let's talk about what we do in terms of treating composite from a traceability documentation quality perspective what what do we do that maybe our clients have, are not used to seeing
2: sure so even in the installation process, you know, all of the traceability documents up until that point are available. So what's great about our competency system is it's fully auditable. I, you, can, you can check and say, hey, was this person competent in composite? And not only can I say yes, and can show you that the specific skill that was required on this job was approved by employee X's manager, you know, six months ago. That's the level of detail that we have in our competency system. When it comes to installation, we don't wanna jump over, you know, having appropriate installation procedures and specifically inspection and test plans. So having a detailed ITP to carry out all the critical steps on the job is very important. And that ITP, you know, covering some, so some of the, the traceability comes from the manufacturing and the engineering side. So what we do when we perform an installation is we record all the batch numbers of the products that we're using and all the 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 batch numbers of so of the resins we record and of the, of the fiber so that they're traceable back to individual testing just like in MTR. So when we do when we do an installation um, I can say, hey, I used this resin. Here was the expiry date on the resin. And this is when the resin was tested back in the manufacturer's facility. And these are the results that are used in our calculations to allow us to, you know, predict the, or allow us to design the repair. So that's the level of traceability that we bring when we do an installation. Once the installation is complete, sometimes it requires a post-curing process. We have the luxury of having a post-well heat treatment division, or heat treatment in general. So there's oftentimes when we log the post-curing process, and we have a traceable record on how it was cured, um, and then at the end of the day, we have a complete QC turnover package rivaling any welded repair, EPE, or any alteration you know, performed under the legislation today. And you would end up with an equivalent package when we perform composites.
1: So describe to me what's in that turnover package that a client would receive from us. That might be different
2: from what they're used to. Um, so different from what they're used to would be, to start off, would be the traceability of the materials. Because what they're used to is somebody, potentially somebody just grabbing material off a shelf and applying it um, with no... Consideration of where it came from, how it was used, you know, ripping a bag open and installing it. So you get a very detailed, traceable, back to manufacturing product. You get competency records of all the installers. You would have uh, a, an ITP, so an ITP that's submitted and approved with the owner in advance, signed off every step of the way, and then closed out with the project. So. That's a step that our owners are going to be very familiar with on a traditional repair. They're probably not going to see a lot of in the composite world. And then at the end, hardness testing. So one of the things about a traditional repair is they can always go back to their NDE. And this was x-rayed, this was UT'd. So but we also provide a non-destructive testing examination of the product and the report to go along with that and hardness testing. So we map out the repair on a drawing, show you where we take the hardness values and record those hardness values. So that's also added to the QC package to to really show you the integrity right from origination of product all the way to final cure um, on the system.
1: So, a full traditional turnover package, including competency, materials, engineering documents, procedures, the design calculations, and the ITP as a full quality turnover document, fully traceable, and that they and the client has a full uh, documentation package of that repair. The same way they would with a weld, or they would with a, a hot tap, or they would with a a leak containment device, probably more than they get from most of the providers in that space. Definitely. Um, Fantastic. Chris, let's just pivot a little bit. And so we've talked, and I I really wanted to cover the step-by-step process, why we do what we do, how that's different from why the, the client may have a misperception of composite because they've never experienced that. Um, but let's just pivot and talk about where we are in Canada relative to uh, regulatory uh, recognition, um, a, a standardized practice. So, for for everyone, you know, for most people who who care about composites, who maybe listen to this, this hasn't existed, and this has left composite in the world of a non-approved repair from the perception of. Um, reliability and quality uh professionals with our owner clients uh, but we're changing that and we, we've been on that path you and i have been pushing this for many many years and i think i had an, a, a goal and ambition even before you and i started working together to get it to this place but we're making progress can you give our listeners um an update on where we are and what you know what, what, what that's looking like
2: yeah, for sure. So quickly, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on, you know, what we tried and specifically what I tried and, and why, why I think it failed. And now why we're having such significant progress. We, um, I submitted, I actually submitted, compiled and submitted a catalog of repairs to a regulatory authority and got extremely close in having it accepted with the CRN. And eventually ran against some other stakeholders, some other design review engineers within that body that were not comfortable with the repair and pushing us. Pushing at the time was viewed very commercially advantageous to innovator. And they felt like this is not what's best for the industry. This is just what's best for your company. And, That wasn't true. Um, And and you know, as well as I know, that we have been pushing this regulation because we know it's required. We we know the industry not just needs it, they want it. There's, there's safety concerns with performing, you know, improper repairs on pressurized systems. And, And then there's the standardization, you know, bringing everyone up to a certain level, we would have stopped battling, you know, these owners and clients that say the product doesn't work, the application doesn't work, when in fact it was just, you know, that specific installation of it. So it wasn't successful the first round, and it was—I think it was a small voice um, going up against, uh, and it just—I just got drowned out. What's happened since then is there've been a lot of owner operators come together, a lot of discussion a lot of discussion over the last two, three years. The voice got big and loud enough and the regulators said, you know what? We're ready. You guys have come together. You've, you know, you've settled on what you want. You've told us what you want. Now we're ready to listen. So while they wouldn't listen to one company in the industry, now they're viewing this as the industry is dictating change. They don't want to be the ones who start the change. They look to support industry. Industry is their client, and they want to support industry. So now that we've got industry together, which is owner-operators, installers, manufacturers, Absa is listening. And and I say Absa in this case because that's specifically who's who's chairing this group. The group that I'm referring to is, is just an industry group that was created with the purpose of drafting a document that would be accepted by the Alberta Pressure Safety Legislation Administrator to allow for composite repairs under the legislation. So we started this process back in January of this year, maybe December. We had our first meeting in December, and we really kick-started it in January. We're writing an AB document. Anyone who's familiar with ABSA would know that there's – a number of different A-B documents, so we're writing a 500 series A-B document. That document will outline the use of composite as a repair, approved repair activity, all the way from the manufacturing of it, through the registration of it, the competency, the training, all aspects of a composite repair system are going to be covered in that document. We're approximately halfway there we set a goal in the beginning of the year to be, have a, a document ready for the administrator by the end of the year. I think we've hit some road bumps with COVID, and um, but the benefit of our group, I mean, we, we all work at different jobs. We all work um, individually. So we meet on uh, virtual meetings once a month and we're getting very close. We're, we're approximately 50% of the way there. And I'm confident that at the end of the year, we will have that document ready to present to the administrator.
1: Now, you say um, that this is ABSA. I mean, we're talking about uh, Alberta legislation. Uh, I may be wrong in this, but there was some collaboration with TSASC in this working group as well. Are they involved?
2: Yes, they are. TSASC has representation and will fully endorse um, the acceptance of the document once it's, you know, once it's approved, so obviously they'll do their review. This is so maybe fully endorse, maybe the wrong words, but they're, they are on board and open to the idea of using composites and will review this document and with the intention of approving it um, when it's complete. So that will be two provinces that, has, that will be accepting of the repair. Other provinces were asked to join and they did not put forth representations. That doesn't mean that they won't accept the document or draft a similar document for themselves. They're just not represented in the task group right now.
1: All right. So after we, as an industry, get a place where the administrators in Alberta and Saskatchewan have essentially sanctioned this, made it a new, um, a, a, a new process we can all follow, We'll be in a place where we'll have guidelines and standards to perform composites under that under those guidelines in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, that will, I mean, you're presenting to the administrator target at the end of the year, sometime hopefully sometime in 2021. Maybe that will take two weeks, six weeks, or six months. We really don't know. Um, but ABSA is involved in the working group, so that should help lubricate those gears to. Hopefully, make that not be a a protracted period of time before that 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 new AB document is approved. Is that is that fair to say that because there's uh, involvement not just with industry players but ABSA sort of cheering this thing that we would hope that this would, by the time we present the document, that it would get sanctioned faster.
2: I think so, and yes, and that it it does it does a couple of things it shows their willingness to participate up front. So it tells us right away that this is not just lip service. Like they're, they're involved and they're, you know, they're helping guide the creation of the document to where they know it needs to be for acceptance. So we're getting that, that steering, we're getting that live and an absent member is chair of the committee. So we have, Full buy-in and support from ABSA and and TSAS from it.
1: So. That's great. That that that's the you know that's what we were we've that's been shooting for. We were we were looking for that level of involvement from industry and all all parties when we started this process. I don't know when it was. It feels like forever. Maybe uh, I want to <laughs> say ten. I want to say ten years. But it started as soon as you and I started working together. It was one of the first things I gave you. Is I I need you to figure this out. We got to get. Engineered composite, recognized, you know, so our clients can leverage it, and and I didn't ever care if it was just us. I'm 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 actually super stoked that we are creating a standard across the industry. I think this is a better uh, a better outcome than if we had simply gotten approval ourselves.
2: Yeah, this because for us to get approval ourselves, we would still run into the roadblock of then the owner facility, not having it in their QMS, not being able to do it. Oh, it's great, you have a product that's approved, but I'm not allowed to use it. And and we run into that, you know, we might run into that with some of our unique technologies, not allowed to use it is the wrong term, Um, not comfortable or not understanding the process to use it. So quick flange, friction force bonding, maybe add-on gate valve, all those unique technologies that like quick where we have a CRN, our end users don't understand always how that affects them on how they can do a repair with quick flange. This that's method right. clearly states how they, what they need to do to make this work. And that's, what's great about it.
1: Where do you, uh, you know, let, let's fast forward and begin with the end in mind and, uh, optimistically, it's january or february or march of 2021 and we've got a new ab document that is being used in alberta and saskatchewan what do you see our steps as an industry to bring this to the other regulatory groups across canada
2: what i think will happen is immediately and this is good um and it could continue this way or they can strive to write their own version, what's going to happen is they're going to open the door for case-by-case analysis, case-by-case basis. So they'll they'll review, they'll say, okay, ABSA is now doing this. There's industry experience, um, there's precedent. And we'll show them, you know, we'll submit a design application to somebody like TSSA, replicating what we would do for ABSA, but you know, with the unique differences that TSSA requires, and I see them allowing that as soon as this is approved by absence Saskatchewan. They may not have their own unique process in place, but I see them opening up for case-by-case submission.
1: Perfect. Now, in advance of that administrator approval, there are some things clients can do get to get ready. What, what are the things that clients can do now, potentially with us, to help them get ready for having this in their program, or even even uh, doing some testing uh, as part of this development,
2: what, what's happening there that we could offer clients that we
1: could help them with today?
2: Sure. So there's there's a couple of things, um, and actually, you know, there's one of the first things that they could do is if we have an owner who is extremely interested and to take it a step further an individual you know an individual at a facility that's passionate and interested about composite and has a voice they could reach out and we can add them to the group you know that would be something that we could do immediately for them get them involved and they can see the development and the requirements as it happens it's not too late for that um it's you know the group is open invitation um, we just follow a quick process to, to get you involved and you know, understanding that you're making a commitment to the group when you join. Um, that's something that we could do. Because we've been doing this for the last 10 years, like you said, and now intimately involved in the changes, we're, I feel like we're a few steps ahead. We've already written some processes. I've already written catalogs for clients. Even though we didn't have acceptance, so clients who have operations in other areas, you know whether they're Category D type systems or wellhead type, you know t- type scenarios where it's covered under the Alberta Energy Board um, and and governed by CSA Z six six two, we've already written programs for clients that is almost plug and play. So with that experience in mind, we could help and owner get up to speed fast. There's gonna be legwork, there's gonna be, you know, where can I apply it, how can I apply it, what rules do I need to put in place for checking my subcontractors, there's a lot of things to consider, and we've already drafted a lot of that. Um, Now because I see the changes firsthand, I'm able to tweak those documents early and easily help somebody get up to speed so that when we approve it, like you said, optimistically in February, they're not actually 2022 before they can start using it.
1: Right. So the big proactive thing that clients can do and work with us on is effectively we can, we can help them get all of this baked into their owner management program. They can have all the processes and procedures, their own guidelines in place that are going to be ready for next year.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Now the other part of this and it's been contained to the group so far so what we've seen inside the group is some owners raise their hand and say hey i've got a low pressure low temperature condensate line that would be a great application for composite it's it's safety coats piping and you know it's governed by absa but we think it would be an excellent low risk um it's a needed application. They're not just wrapping something that doesn't need to be wrapped. They're going to have to repair it regardless. And ABSA has agreed to those applications. They welcome those applications. So not only within the group, um, you know, if we had an owner-operative representative join or come to us with an application, we can present it on their behalf. It's not. It's not a, a ballpark approval where, yeah, okay, you're good. You would create the scenario where you would have a scenario. Per, say, Chris, we'd love to wrap this. Um, when we're interested in doing it, following the, you know, following a pilot project with the work group, then I can present it on their behalf. Get Absa's buy-in, and we can perform the wrap.
1: Awesome. So we have three things customers can do as a result of hearing this webinar. Uh, one is they could reach out to you and you could uh, have them in potentially invited into the working group so they could participate in the development of these standards or, and, or uh, at the very least, you know, get ahead of the curve in terms of being informed as it evolves. Number two, we can help them as an engineering consultant effectively develop their procedures for their program in advance of, the, the A, B standards coming out. And number three, if they have an application that they want to use as a pilot project, then we can help them present and sponsor that, uh, that application under this working group for ABSA to consider as a pilot project in advance. Absolutely. Chris, um, how can customers reach out to you if they have some of these inquiries? I'll give them some other links that they can reach out to us as a business, but how, how do they reach you?
2: Uh, yeah, for sure. So I'm um, very easily reachable, I would say. Um, best way to contact me is through my email. Um, and maybe, uh, I don't know if uh, if our producer might, might want to share that uh, at the end uh, or in the beginning or something, but I can share it again now. Um, you know, it's, uh, can, it's my first edition in the last... Notes.
1: What's that? We'll put it in the show notes, but, uh, but you know, speak uh, so people yeah, might, uh, yeah, might write yeah, it down.
2: Absolutely. So it's just ccoombs at innovator which is c-c-o-o-m-b-s at innovator ind short for industrial.com and that's the easiest main way to reach me um you can i can also be reached at the uh, the main line for innovator in in edmonton that's that's my office so any any call to that office and and you know request to speak with myself will be transferred to me that number is 780-436-4666. And then I'm also active on LinkedIn. Um, look me up as a contact, make a connection and send me a message.
1: Fantastic. And finally, if, uh, if you want to make an inquiry, uh, and you just simply go to our website, you go to innovatorind.com and you'll see a button anywhere on any page. And it's called want to talk. It'll bring you to a quick form. You fill out your name And you check the box that says composite repair and you add a couple of comments and hit submit. And we will get that instantly notified that you want to talk about composite repair. And uh, one of our people will get in touch to have that conversation, whether that's about the working group, about helping develop your processes and procedures for your uh, own QMS, or if you're interested in, uh, in a pilot, all three of those things are things you can do, as a result of uh, hearing us speak today, Chris uh, thanks so much. I think this was a really great conversation. we've done some other webinars and composite uh, and and po- and podcasts on composite repair. I think this one was was compelling and and very pointed to uh, our our audience specifically in Canada. And it really allowed us to dive deep into the step-by-step process and why it's different than what customers might think it is. So I really thought this was a great conversation. Thanks again for joining us, and uh, we'll catch you again on the next show.
2: Thanks, Don. pleasure was
0: mine. And there you have it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. For more information about everything you've heard or to get in contact with either of our speakers, simply visit us at innovator.ca. Don't forget to leave a like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. It truly does help out the show a lot. With all that said, we can't wait to see you next time on the Industrial Innovators Podcast.